This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories. Man on Moon by Don Corrigan and Inside the Monkey House by Susan Buttonweezer. Bound Off is always looking for great stories. Visit our website at boundoff.com to find our submission guidelines. Also, we're entering our fifth year of free short story podcasts. If you like what you hear, please head over to iTunes and leave us a nice review. Man on Moon, written and read by Don Corrigan. Listening time, 2 minutes 49 seconds. Man on Moon by Don Corrigan There was a girl who was born in a land that was at war. The war was broadcast on TV, so every evening the people could sit in their living rooms after work and see how things were going. For a while, things seemed to be going their way. But then, after a while longer, it became clear that things were not. To distract the people from the war, the President built a rocket ship and sent a man to the moon. This event was also broadcast on TV and preempted the war on every channel. It was good stuff. The girl was two when the man went to the moon. All day long her parents watched the man as he walked in his big space boots, planted a flag, collected rocks, and drove a go-kart. It was like watching a Boy Scout earn all his merit badges in one fell swoop. From where she stood in her playpen, the girl watched, too. She needs to go down for a nap, her mother said after a while. Man on moon, the girl said. She's watching the moon man, her father said. She's too young, her mother said, and attempted to lift the girl out of the playpen. But the girl hung on tight to the bar and squealed with dismay. Her mom stopped tugging. Man on moon, the girl said. So her parents let her stay up and watch the rest of the broadcast, even though it meant missing her nap. The next day, it was back to the war coverage. While they ate dinner, the girl's parents put her in the playpen in front of the TV. Man on moon? the girl asked. No, honey, her father said. That's boys with bombs. There's a war on. So the girl watched the war instead. And oh, I forgot to mention, her name was Margarita, but everyone called her Margot. Eventually the girl grew up. When she did, she forgot about what she'd seen on TV when she was very young, the war and all its suffering, the man frolicking on the moon. But some part of her remembered, because she thought she was in love with the man in the moon. Each month on the night of the full moon, she'd sit on her window sill with a glass of bourbon, staring up at the moon and dreaming her dreams, which were full of space flight and daring do and playing bass in a rock band and succoring young men who'd been scarred by terrible experiences. I've always thought it looks more like a rabbit, said her friend Wendy one night when they'd polished off most of a bottle of wine so that the moon looked even more glowing and diffuse and dreamy than usual from Margot's perch by the window. Hush, you, she said, turning her face toward the stars. Don Corrigan has published poetry and fiction in a number of print and online journals. She's an associate editor at Girls With Insurance and an original member of the writing collective The Nervous Breakdown. She lives in Gulf Breeze, Florida. 
Inside the Monkey House Written and read by Susan Buttonweiser Listening time, 11 minutes, 19 seconds Inside the Monkey House by Susan Buttonweiser Standing in front of the Tamarind exhibit, Shelley first realizes that her son has disappeared somewhere inside the monkey house. Connor, she stammers quietly, as if suddenly unsure of her own son's name. Connor, honey, where are you? Only moments ago, his hot, sticky fingers were intertwined with hers as she read one of the placards out loud to him. Tamarins usually give birth to twins. The father is the main caregiver. Then she got distracted watching a brawl in the back of the cage. The next thing she knew, Connor's hand was no longer inside hers, and she couldn't see him anywhere. Squinting into the darkness, she searches the clumps of children huddled around the nearby cages. There he is, standing by the colobus monkeys. The band of anxiety wound inside her chest starts to ease up as she rushes towards him. But it turns out that the tow-headed boy is not her son. Shelley's father was the one who suggested the monkey house when they stopped for lunch at the Pink Flamingo Cafe. He poured over the map while Connor got ketchup on the crocodile face mask that came with his junior's soonkeeper meal from inhaling the chicken nuggets and french fries nestled in a sand bucket. See, if you give this kid proper food, he'd eat more, her father finished up a burger. Lay off all that vegan crap on him. No wonder he's so nervous. Shelley didn't reply, just nibbled on one of the damp sandwiches she'd made for them earlier that morning. She always brought picnics when she took Connor to the zoo at home but her father had insisted on buying lunch. There's a monkey house right next door, her father looked up at Shelley. You got bit by a monkey in the zoo once, remember? Think that was the last time I was in one of these places. You must remember that. Kelly shook her head. What kind of a person forgets getting bit by a monkey? Shelley not only didn't remember being bit by a monkey, she couldn't recall her father ever taking her to a zoo, much less anywhere else. By the time she started school, he had already left her mother and moved across the country. The things she remembered were her older sister Nina making dinner, giving her a bath, and putting her to bed every night because her mother suddenly had to work two jobs. Nina was the one who told her about his emphysema. You gotta go see Dad, she'd said on the phone a few weeks ago. I don't gotta go do nothing, Shelley replied. Connor had just taken a bath, and she was struggling to get him into his dinosaur footsie pajamas. Shell, the guy's not got long, I'm telling you. You'll regret it if you don't. Her sister had stopped speaking to their mother for some reason that Shelley could never understand. When she died a few years ago, they still hadn't resolved the conflict. Monkeys rock. Connor imitated his older cousin who looked after him whenever Shelley had to work late. Monkeys rock, her father smiled. This kid kills me. Hey, what kind of music you got the kid listening to anyway? A worried expression started to creep across Connor's face, as if not wanting to get the answer wrong. We listen to everything, Shelley said defiantly. You don't have him listening to that, like, children's rock shit, do you? Dad! Jeez, I forgot, you are all so sensitive about the language. Anyway, I hope he's not listening to Dan Zane's or any of that. He caught himself stuff. There's nothing sadder than an aging rocker cashing in on some cheap-ass, sorry, children's songs just to make an easy buck. Connor gazed at his grandfather, and Shelley felt a swell of pride at her little boy. He was always so well-behaved but had been particularly good ever since they arrived here a few days ago. It wasn't easy visiting her father. For one thing, his apartment wasn't really equipped to handle visitors, especially small children. He lived in a protected community for seniors, and even though it wasn't officially a home, it still smelled like ammonia and urine and decay. 
There weren't any toys, and the only places to sit were her father's easy chair that he never left, a footstool, and a giant throw pillow. When they arrived after the six-hour flight, Shelley could hardly find any food in the kitchenette. Dolores makes me dinner usually, he'd explained when Shelley tried to fix something for Connor to eat and only came up with cocktail peanuts and tonic water. Who's Dolores? This chick who has a crush on me, lives across the hall, used to be a real looker. I knew her back in the day. A real groupie she was. You wouldn't guess it now, though. Anyway, she makes a nice meatloaf with chopped up pickles and ketchup. What about the other meals, Dad? Oh, those. He swatted at the question as if it were a fly. There's like a continental breakfast thing in the lobby. You know, like with toast and cereal and fruit, like they do in Europe. That's why they call it continental, as in continental Europe, not England. England, they have this thing called a fried breakfast where they fry everything, even the toast, in oil. Can you believe that? But not in Europe. Connor had waited patiently during this speech, but then started gently pestering Shelley to go swimming. The taste of bile returns to the back of Shelley's throat as she thinks of her son floating with his orange water bands amongst all the seniors in the oval swimming pool. He's got to be here somewhere, she thinks, scanning the crowd yet again. Everywhere she sees small boys, a boy wearing a Padres baseball hat, one with a DS, another with a map, band-aids all over his left knee, holding his little sister's hand, holding his mother's hand, on his father's shoulders, pressing his hands against the glass, screaming at the marmosets. None of them is her son. Connor, she repeats louder this time. Connor! She walks from one end of the monkey house to the other and then back again. He isn't anywhere. People clutch their own children as she calls out his name, her panic increasing with each step as she rushes up and down alongside the glassed-in scurrying simians. Her father never visited them and only occasionally sent letters. Usually it was just newspaper clippings about bands that played at his club. I think he left us because we were too boring, Nina would say when the letters arrived. This is the first time Shelley has stayed with her father since a Thanksgiving visit when she was in sixth grade. A woman named Ginger picked her and her sister up at the airport, and Shelley remembers thinking she was the same Ginger from Gilligan's Island. The whole day had been surreal, flying on an airplane for the first time, getting endless cokes brought right to their seats by the flight attendants. It seemed so unbelievably glamorous. Their mother never let them drink soda, eat sugared cereal, Wonder Bread, or any of the other stuff that all their friends consumed. They were only allowed to watch public television, and weekends were spent being dragged to demonstrations, political meetings, and consciousness-raising events. Instead of Girl Scouts, they did woodcraft folk art. Instead of organized sports, which their mother claimed was part of the military-industrial complex, they did yoga. That was way, way before anyone even knew what it was. That was way before their mother became born again. Once inside Ginger's convertible, they kept smiling at each other as they drove down the Los Angeles freeway. They had never seen a woman like this Ginger except on television. The only woman they knew were mothers or teachers. She stopped at a drive through burger place where Shelley had her first vanilla milkshake that was so thick she could barely suck it up through the straw. Then she had to go to the bathroom but didn't want to stop, never wanted to get out of that car. She thought she might wet her pants, but finally they arrived at her father's house. Ginger showed them around, and their mouths dropped open when they saw the swimming pool. No one in Cleveland had swimming pools except crazy rich people. Was their father crazy rich, they wondered? It had blue tiles, a diving board, and a slide. They swam in it all afternoon. Ginger covered herself in baby oil and red magazines, stretched out on a lounge chair, occasionally getting up to bring them more soda, Doritos, and cookies. 
Shelley started fantasizing about living there permanently. And then, long after it was dark, their father got home from work. They stood around wrapped in towels as he shook their hands. Shelley's fingertips were wrinkled up from being submerged in the water for so long. They went out to a steak restaurant, and he got mad when Shelley and Nina only wanted hamburgers. He took them to his nightclub, and they both fell asleep on a pile of coats in a back office. Shelley couldn't remember very much else about the trip, except for the endless afternoons by the pool and long evenings sitting in booths at his club. "'Can I help you?' a nearby mother asked Shelley. She'd been studying her for a few minutes. "'You look as if you could use it.' "'Use what?' Shelley snaps back. She already hated this woman, could tell her type immediately, the kind who lived to feel superior to other mothers. "'Help!' You look like you need some help, the awful woman says loudly, as if Shelley doesn't quite understand English. Did you lose someone? The last thing she wants to admit was that she has lost her son. She stares at the woman, blinking back tears that have started to escape and are, were streaming down her face. I am completely fine, she wants to scream. And, up until a few minutes ago, she was. Despite what she promised herself when she was little, she's raising a child all on her own, Connor's father barely in their lives at all. But she's doing a pretty good job of it, if she may say so herself. Finding a great school, getting her boss to let her have flex time so she's able to leave work early and they can spend afternoons together in the park or the library, even being allowed to work at home most Fridays. Okay, so they weren't exactly loaded, but they were doing all right, Shelley and Connor. Plenty of food in the fridge, most of it organic or from the local CSA. At that, never late paying the rent or bills. And they could afford camping trips at the end of each summer and to visit Nina and her kids for Christmas. But sometimes, when Connor was already long asleep, and Shelley has had a bit more than her usual one or two glasses of wine, the terror starts to overwhelm her. Is he really okay, she worries, sitting on her couch, wrapped in a blanket, staring out the window into the darkness? Does he have too many nightmares? Enough friends? What if something happened to Shelley? And her biggest worry. What if she's actually a terrible mother, and the real reason she had Connor in the first place was so she could do all the things she never got to do when she was a child. That when she's reading him bedtime stories at night, the person she's reading them to is herself. Who is she really taking to the zoo anyway? What's wrong with that lady? A little girl points at Shelley. People have turned away from the cages and instead are looking at her. The crazy bad mommy who can't do anything right. Not even something simple like successfully taking her son to the zoo without losing him. She has to get away from the smell of feces, the screeching of the children and the monkeys. It's so hot and dark and crowded that for a brief moment she feels like she might pass out. She needs fresh air right now. Sobbing, she makes her way towards the exit. Shelley pushes open the heavy wooden door that leads outside, gulping in the cool air. It takes her eyes a moment to adjust to the sudden brightness. There's a clown selling balloons right by a father, shouting at his little boys, one of whom has just dropped a large ice cream cone and is shrieking. A group of teenagers takes pictures of each other on the camel rides. When they arrived at the monkey house, her father said his emphysema was acting up and that he'd have to wait outside for them instead. So he sat on a bench with their bag, right outside the entrance while she'd gone, on, gone in with Connor. Shelley wipes at her face, and then she sees him, her little boy, curled up on her father's lap, his head tucked under her father's chin, both of them sitting there, waiting for her to find them. Susan Buttonweiser's fiction has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and appeared in Fail Better, 3AM, and other publications. She teaches writing in organizations for at-risk populations 
including incarcerated women and youth. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.